Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, another dialogue uh, talking about a variety of issues, uh, an expanding list of, of issues. We're going to kind of tread water here for a few minutes while people come in from the uh, from the waiting room. Um, and uh, we're going to hopefully give you a chance to um, think of your questions as we go along, uh, put them in the Q&A, uh, and uh, we'll get to as many as we possibly can. Uh, it's always a, uh, it's in interesting to see um, who's here and, and the questions you have. Um, I think we can go ahead and start. Uh, this is an ongoing uh, series of uh, dialogues that uh, is sponsored by the International Antiviral Society USA. Uh, we think of ISUSA as being uh, all about HIV, which is how it started, uh, but uh, the organization has broadened to en encompass other chronic viral infections and more recently, obviously, uh, to address COVID. Um, the latest kid on the block is monkeypox. We're going to hopefully talk about that a little bit later in the in the uh, program, uh, and and I think there you know as we as we go along, we can uh, expect to see other uh, viral infections emerging. It seems to be uh, seems to be an important thing. Uh, so with us today, uh, uh, we have several uh, people that those that have been here before uh, will easily recognize on, on my screen uh, from the top is Peter Chin Hong uh, from UCSF, uh, Bonnie Maldonado from Stanford, and Mike Sag from uh, UAB. We often have Carlos Del Rio, but Mike and Carlos are a great tag team. Uh, uh, Carlos is in the, the other Georgia this week, he says, the, the country of Georgia. Um, and so rather than forcing him to join us at 3 a.m., uh, Mike has agreed to uh, to come in again, and uh, and I think you'll agree that all three of our discussions are incredible experts in the in the area that we're going to try to try to address today. So, as I was saying, as we started, um, uh, we'll watch the Q and A function. Uh, the Q and A function is is where we'll uh, look for uh, questions that you might have uh, as we go along. Um, and and again, we'll we'll try to um, uh, address as many of uh, of your questions as we can. Uh, we have a, a number, a lot of people signed up today. Four hundred and fifty are signed up so far. Uh, 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 about one hundred and sixty are are with us already. So uh, so that's great. Um, and. So welcome. Uh, maybe uh, let's go for, uh, through our uh, discussions and introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about you. Just a just a couple sentences. Maybe again, starting with uh, with Peter. Hello, everybody. My name is Peter Chin Hong. I'm an infectious disease doctor, professor of medicine at UCSF, and uh, during COVID, uh, did a lot of communication, uh, ran trials uh, through our group uh, for UCSF for all the major antivirals and anti-inflammatory meds. And I'm getting increasingly involved in monkeypox uh, therapeutics as well. Great. Uh, Mike, do you want to go next? Sure. I'm Mike Sag. I'm at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Um, uh, was a, <laughs> an unwitting pioneer in COVID. Uh, I got infected in early March uh, 2020 uh, and learned the hard way what this was about. But then since that time, I've been involved in patient care and also communications about uh, COVID and especially focused a little bit on long COVID. Great, and I, and I notice uh, that we have uh, some great friends, Kevin Carmichael, uh, who is a, a great supporter of, of the organization and Janet Silicano from, uh, from Hopkins and, and others. I'll kind of try to call out people as, as, as we go along. Bonnie, uh, introduce yourself. Bonnie Maldonado, and I'm a professor of global health and infectious diseases at Stanford. I'm a pediatric infectious disease epidemiologist, um, primarily working on vaccine-preventable diseases in kids, primarily in developing settings. Did a lot of work with PMTCT, uh, HIV prevention in, from mother to child in sub-Saharan Africa, and like the others, uh, became a COVID um, expert, although as far as I know, I haven't gotten infected yet, but that may just because I missed 
it was asymptomatic, I have no idea. Uh, but I did start off early on with large scale uh, Bay Area wide uh, epi trials with my colleagues at UCSF, as well as doing antiviral studies here at Stanford um, in the outpatient setting, and more recently working on pediatric vaccines. So uh, a lot of work among the three of us here so far. Uh, and, and, and that's that's great. And um, we uh, will definitely get into uh, pediatric vaccines. I know that there's the last time we had this dialogue, there was a lot of interest because things are still very much in flux. I think it's still fair to say that things aren't quite fully settled yet. Um, but um, uh, Mike, why don't you start by just telling us what what what's happening in the last few weeks? What are you what are you watching with this? And uh, and, and we can we can begin the conversation. Yeah, I'd say it's variants, variants, variants. So. Just six weeks ago, we didn't see much BA4 or BA5. And we saw cases in South Africa and some other European areas. But now the U.S. is really getting hit hard with BA4 and now BA5. It's causing a spike in cases. Second thing I think we're seeing is that while it's hard to judge exactly how many cases are because so much use of home testing, so we can't track the numbers of cases other than what's in the hospital and of course those that show up for testing at hospitals. But it really feels like we're, at a, we're in the middle of a surge right now. Fortunately, the majority of people are not getting critically ill. Um, the usual risk groups are getting sick. Uh, but, but I think what we're, I can't tell if that's because these newer variants are less virulent and we can talk about that, or whether there's been so many people who've been vaccinated and boosted and also perhaps on top of that had an infection often with Omicron early on in January that we're not seeing as much illness. But I can tell you, I think for anybody who's in a provider right now, your phone's ringing off the hook, your text's going crazy. And sometimes often not even patients you take care of, it's friends, relatives, friends of friends, and it's becoming a little bit overwhelming. I don't know what you guys are seeing. Well, one of the, uh, <laughs> it reminds me to, to, to add that uh, Carlos Del Rio, who is uh, often on this, uh, on this call himself, uh, has just uh, been recovering from COVID. And, you know, unlike a, a lot of the people that we've, we've heard about, he was quite sick, um, not sick enough to be hospitalized, but, but really quite symptomatic. So I think one of the things we want to talk about is and what are we seeing in terms of the, the illness that's uh, that's happening? Is COVID, is is the four and five variants uh, the same? Uh, there, uh, uh, study just came out. Yeah, uh, just after we spoke yesterday, I was looking reading an article um, looking at uh, healthcare workers in Italy. Uh, you may have seen this, Peter and Mike, but um, it was a prospective study of healthcare workers that were followed for almost two years with weekly uh, testing. And what they found was that they went through several waves, but they, uh, they, uh, they found that uh, vaccinated healthcare workers were uh, significantly less likely to get infected. Um, unfortunately, they didn't really, they didn't, they didn't seem to find any difference in symptoms, but they definitely found that people were less likely to get infected. Um, and this was through the Omicron period as well. So I think they've got some good data there. But what you said, Mike, is probably right that it's all of the above. I think we're heading into a pandemic, an endemic phase at some point. I don't know when we can officially say that, but there's plenty of immunity uh, from vaccine, from infection. And I do think that these variants are also probably less um, virulent. So it's a, it's probably a combination of all those. Yeah, so I, I agree with that too. Uh, I think in terms of the protection of vaccine in the Omicron era, it's still actually protective, just not as protective. Um, riffing off Bonnie's study in, uh, of the Italian healthcare workers, I think to me, last week's CDC report of, which focused mainly on mortality, difference 14 times uh, more if you're unvaccinated and four times more if you've gotten uh, uh, one booster instead of two for over 50. But if you look at the infection curves, uh, unvaccinated versus vaccinated, still less and much less infection, even though it seems everybody's getting it. It's not necessarily true. Like Bonnie, luckily I haven't gotten it as yet. Um, but again, I'm not um, fearful of it and I'm just trying to do the best I can. 
what are you what are you seeing um, uh, in any of you in terms of what what you observe in your you know as you go around uh, your your communities in terms of what people are thinking are people kind of paying attention to this are people masking uh, what's your what's your sense of the of the mood Mike you know, I'd, I'd say it's forgotten but not gone is probably the best way I'd describe it and I'm going to go to this event this evening in Birmingham in a large crowded space, I bet I'm one of 10 people out of 40,000 who might be wearing a mask. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, I, just got, I just got back from a weekend, a long weekend in another state. And, uh, but I guess it doesn't really matter. So, because the, the airplane, most people were wearing masks, um, uh, which was interesting uh, going out there, coming back as well. But in the crowds, very little, I would say. We didn't really go indoors very much, though. Um, but I think um, uh, it's interesting to, you know, while a lot of us saw Eric Topol's uh, commentary and then his New York Times uh, quote, and I, people are getting infected, but I think they've just, at least here, I was mentioning to Paul and Peter the other day that the Stanford students have just decided, I think this is true among campus students or overall, they're just going to get it and get over it um, because they don't think they're at high risk because they're all vaccinated. And to a large extent, that is true. Um, but we did also see last week data from CDC that the first time I've seen them put together a comprehensive list of co long COVID, and it's not uh, it's it's not insignificant. So it's a reasonably high number of people in some studies, as high as a quarter of people with longer term symptoms. Now, what that means, um, hard to say. But I think people um, in the real world are just uh, you know they're worried about gas prices and inflation right now, and I don't think COVID is on the list anymore. So let, let's uh, let's dig into the long COVID uh, now that you've raised it, Bonnie. Um, obviously, that's what uh, I think most people are most afraid of um, uh, in this. Um, what do we know? How come we don't know more? Um, it, it feels to me as though it's still pretty pretty um, vague. We hear we hear reports all over the place. Uh, does vaccine? Uh, uh, have an effect on, on long COVID uh, incidents or severity? Um, what about prior infection? Uh, who, wants to, who wants to start that? I know that everyone's got some, some thoughts about that. Why don't you start, Mike? You have that background. Okay. Yeah, so um, I think there's a couple things. The actual incidence, if you will, of long COVID isn't fully worked out, so there's a range. But I'd say it's at least 3% and it can be as high as 10 to 15% in some studies, but it's devastating to a lot of people. Remember that it can infect major organ systems and it usually is one or the other, uh, brain, lung, heart, gut. Those are the most common. And the brain can be divided into uh, issues with uh, long-term uh, loss of smell. I've seen some things with hearing, chronic headaches, and then brain fog. And there are people who really are suffering with this. Um, we can all think of people who have had, uh, there's a guy who had to retire as a, as a vet because he couldn't think. And it's been over a year. Um, the news that I'm hearing this week and the last couple of weeks, there's a study that showed to your question about vaccination that um, those who are unvaccinated uh, have a much higher likelihood of long COVID and if you've had at least two and the more, like yeah. especially of one booster or more, uh, the incidence drops dramatically. So vaccines seem to help in terms of prevention. And there were those intriguing studies a while back that showed that a few people, not, not a large number, but some who got vaccinated found that their symptoms abated. Going out on a limb here, and I'd like to hear what other people think about this. To me, what it seems like is going on is that the immune system gets hijacked by the virus and the normal stand down orders are not heated. So normally you get infection, you have symptoms caused by immune system reaction. And then when the pathogen's taken care of it, everything just sort of abates, you go back to normal, relatively speaking. Somehow or another, there's parts of the immune system that just don't get the order or don't heat it. And there's continuing uh, inflammation, at least that's my working thought. The problem is that steroids and other things don't seem to work. So it may be, it's, it sounds more complicated. 
So um, I think that's right, Mike. I think one of the things that we're seeing here is Michelle Manji, who's one of our basic science neuroscientists, has looked at some of the inflammatory effects on the brain. And she says that um, their, their uh, research has uh, uh, demonstrated that it's very similar in the response that you see to chemotherapy. So it does look like there's some longer term neuro, uh, neuroinflammatory impacts that we don't really understand. Maybe some of it may be cytokine related. Um, some may be other kinds of inflammatory pathways that we're not quite sure. And you're right, it's dysregulation. And the other one I wanted to bring up, Paul, is just the fact that we still don't know what happened with those hepatitis cases in kids. But some people have suggested, now the numbers fortunately flattened out, but that there may be some relationship between an abnormal response, for example, to normal viral infections um, uh, in, in people who, who have previously had COVID. Yeah, I want to get back to the hepatitis in kids uh, a little bit later, Bonnie, um, and hope you can you can help us there because it seems to me as though it's getting more confusing um, that that it's not quite as yeah. clear, not that it ever was. Uh, but how much do you think this is like um, other post-infectious uh, 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 problems? I mean, we see um, you know people with Lyme disease that have had uh, chronic Lyme disease. I know it's been controversial. Uh, chronic fatigue syndrome is, I think, often thought to be a post-infectious uh, 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 problem of some sort. Are we seeing something different with this, or is this just yet another one of these post-infectious uh, uh, problems? Peter, do you want to toss that around a little bit? Yes, I mean, even before COVID in ID clinic, and I'm sure um, seen by many other people in the audience, uh, I would see people who had chronic post-viral uh, symptoms that lasted for sometimes more than a year. They came to us because uh, they wanted to make sure they didn't have residual virus, uh, and but they were really debilitating and we never really had a good explanation for it, uh, whether or not it's you know CFS or um, they were diagnosed with all these different things. Uh, some scenarios that I've seen personally were uh, people with Giardia, for example, they got it a P-score, um, volunteer and then they continue to have uh, these chronic symptoms that lasted um, for a long time and then viral syndromes too as well so it's not new we've seen it before with influenza it's well described but I think the scope of infection of COVID so many people and also COVID is probably uh, SARS-CoV-2 is higher has a higher likelihood of causing these symptoms for whatever reason um, results in 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 the scope of the problem and even if we say short uh, 10 to 20% of people overall, but even if you say 5% will have symptoms that are debilitating that last more than a year, that's 5 million out of 100 million people in the US. It's like breathtaking. Um, like it's, it's, it's really going to be something we have to deal with as a society for decades and decades. So one thing that's actually, I, and I agree with all of that, but I, one of the things that I think is different here, so we in pediatrics, we also deal with a lot of ADEM, so acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, not with COVID, interestingly enough, but with other post-viral illnesses, we never make the diagnosis of the virus, but it's following a, a clinical viral illness. But what, what's interesting here is we're seeing a really uh, interesting mix of direct uh, organ damage. So for example, cardiac disease, uh -huh. we've heard a lot about the card yep. cardiac dysrhythmias, pulmonary disease, so it's direct viral influence. But then you have something that I really haven't seen much of. I'm getting a number of referrals here. Uh, we have a long COVID clinic as well as you probably do. Um, but um, neuropsychiatric disease. So some of this occurs in people who have never had neurologic disease, uh -huh. but short fiber disease, which is really been very interesting coming uh, in, in particular, at least in my case, from what I've seen. And I've only heard of this happening in young uh, male, uh, young adult males. Now, it doesn't mean that's the only group. That's where I'm hearing it from. But we haven't seen that as much in young children, but in young, you know, uh, tw 20 and 30 year olds um, who had COVID early on before vaccines were little. Some of these were healthcare workers, but some were not. And so so you see that, and then you see the psychiatric uh, manifestations, which also have been very distinct. Some people with a predisposing psychiatric um, issues, others not. So just a real hodgepodge of, of responses. So there are a couple of questions that are coming up in the in the Q and A that I uh, want to help help guide us here. And 
broad issues of uh, vaccine effectiveness um, and Paxlovid um, uh, related issues. So let's let's start with the with the vaccine. So um, Mike, you were saying that you know we're seeing obviously more uh, BA four BA five um, in the United States. What do we know about um, vaccine efficacy? Um, uh, what do we hear about plans for changing the, the vaccine? Um, and what, what do we recommend to people now that are thinking about whether to get their next booster? Yeah, Lots so complicated, right? So yeah, yeah. I think the bottom line is that the, I think there's no question that the vaccines still protect against advancing, advanced disease, hospitalization, ICU visits, death. No question. Uh, boosting is important, especially for older people and people at higher risk. All that said, um, the variants are still largely unknown. And I think just an editorial comment real quick, we got to remember we're only about two years and five months into this. Yeah. What we're used to in medicine is decades worth of experience. Yeah. And we don't have that. We don't have that luxury. What we do have is an amazing amount of technology and understanding and scientific know-how that we are applying in ways that are truly miraculous. So in that regard, I think the thing to watch for in October are these either monovalent or bivalent vaccines coming from a number of the manufacturers, Pfizer, Moderna, others, that will be BA4 or BA5 plus the original. Uh, and I think that's the thing in October to look for so timing, if you're not at a high risk group, you may want to, you know, slow walk your next booster till that time. People that are at high risk need their six month booster, probably get it now and then look to November, December for the booster. What do you think? I think that's absolutely right, because um, we know that Omicron responses even uh, to the uh, ancestral strain in the vaccine are, are not very long lived in terms of antibody levels. Now they are protective against serious disease, but if you're at high risk, you probably want to get a booster now and expect a booster in the fall with the variants. The BA4 and BA5 um, uh, uh, spike protein sequences are identical or pretty pretty close to identical. So the BA4 and 5 non-spike non protein uh, pieces are, are different. So you will get some cross-protection um, but you, you know, whether they're five or four or both, um, they work well so far, at least in, if you look at animal models and neutralizing antibody, the data, as you heard from Mike are very few, but, um, but the interesting thing is it does appear that having the ancestral strain mixed in there does seem to boost the response overall. And by the way, as you said, Mike, we haven't been in this very long, but this vac these vaccines have worked pretty darn well, considering how much variability there is to this virus. Great. Thoughts here? Yeah, I agree with uh, everyone. I mean, I thought it was interesting that when that Pfizer and Moderna had banked on using BA1 in the original cocktail, had started manufacturing it, thinking the government would buy it. Then they released the data and showed it was only like 1.5 times more antibodies against BA4 and 5. So the FDA said, hey, wait a minute, BA1 is old news. Why don't you include BA4 and 5? Otherwise, we would have had something at the end of summer, but because there's going to be a delay, it's going to be October and November. But I agree with everybody that even if BA4 and 5 aren't there, and maybe we have BA6 and 7 or Pi or Rho Sigma, it's right. still going to be updated um, and hopefully will increase infection prevention. But I'm really psyched so far with the effect at preventing uh, hospitalizations and deaths. So, um, you know, that, that is a big success. So, so uh, there's a question in the in the Q and A that's a very practical one um, and close to my heart. <laughs> Healthcare workers over 50 years of age um, had their fourth uh, 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 vaccine, but it's been let's say six months. Um, go for a fifth. Um, is there any reason not to do that? Did you wait until the um, expected? Um, a new version comes out in the in the fall. What's what's your what's your advice to people? Now, 
Yeah, I think it depends on if if you're in a healthcare setting, you're in a you're by definition in a high risk setting. So I would say if you think you're in you know in an academic or tertiary hospital where the flow is really high. Um, you know, that might be not a bad idea. And really, I don't think those people are at high risk for getting hospitalized or dying, but do you really want to be out of work for that long? Because we're still talking about 10 and 20 day isolation periods. So it's more, I, I mean, I hate to call it a nuisance, but you're going to be home and, and look what happened to our colleague who's not here today, not for COVID reasons, but right, right. He, you know, you get sick. It's not, I mean, I've talked to people who said, you know, people make it sound like it's a cold. It's not a cold. And, um, one of the things I was impressed with, with the patients that I was taking care of at the very beginning before we had vaccines is that um, they don't realize how sick they are until they put the little pulse socks on and you're seeing them desat. It's really scary. So you may be sick and not realize how sick you are until you try to walk across the room or something. So I do think that would be the reason, but. Um, Mike is smiling, which I think means that he wants to think did about. Did you go through that? <laughs> No, I'll just say that uh, this is, sounds terrible, but true confessions, when I was in the throes of it, I'd take my pulse ox at, at night, it would drop to about 90 and 89. And then I'd just try different fingers. Until it got better. <laughs> that got to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was frightening. It's, uh, it, you know, they're right on the precipice. So it doesn't take a lot. Before there was vaccine, I had a pulse ox that I took every day just as a prophylaxis, <laughs> even though I was asymptomatic. Um so uh, Paxlovid, um, let's, let's dig into that. So uh, great treatment, right? Uh, prevented serious uh, uh, illness, prevented hospitalizations. Um, but lately, it seems as though every time we turn around, most recently and most uh, obviously, Tony Fauci um, got himself infected with, uh, with COVID, Took, took Paxlovid and was one of many people now that has had, have had this kind of uh, rebound. Um, who wants to start talking about Paxlovid? And then um, I just saw a, a headline today in Science Magazine for next week that uh, Paxlovid resistance may be appearing. And so let's let's talk first about the uh, not the resistance, but the but the uh, rebound. Um, who wants to who wants to talk about that? Peter, do you want to start it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think uh, we've been hearing lots of reports of rebound. There have been some interesting new reports coming out in the literature as to what the risk is. And it could be as low as, well, the trials, it's like 1% to 2%. But there's one interesting one in CID that came out that says that in a population study was 1%, which goes counter to the popular feeling that almost everybody's having rebound, which obviously is not true. I think in my personal experience, it's probably uh, 20% or less, um, but because there's so many people who are uh, getting better with Paxlovid faster, we tend to anchor on these uh, stories and, and, and so, so on. There are two flavors of people I've seen with Rebound. One is that they just keep on checking and their test turns uh, positive to negative, and then which happens very quickly in Paxlovid, maybe within a, a day or two and then positive back again, but they continue to feel well. Then the second flavor, I think, is the one that makes people feel a little bit uh, a little bit out of whack, and that is you start feeling better, and maybe you start off with a sore throat and congestion. You feel better. Your test is negative, and then you get the sore throat back again on day three or four, um, and then you reset the clock with isolation. So I think that day, day, uh, feeling day, is very disconcerting. Day three or four after you stop the load, right? Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so while, but people so far, have we heard anything about people becoming more symptomatic while they're taking it? I mean, the course is pretty short, so maybe that's it just not tastes, it tastes bad, but it, you know, it's ritonavir, but, oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a, there was a question uh, from the, from the audience about, about ritonavir, you know, again, with HIV infected people, let's just quickly, uh, toss that to you, uh, uh, HIV, is that a risk factor for uh, COVID infection or, or any worse outcomes? I think not, right? No, it appears not to be, especially well-established patients with antiviral therapy and undetectable virus. It's really yeah. like anybody else. 
So um, Paxlovid resistance, um, do we, have we heard anything about this? Is that something uh, that uh, is a concern? I think- uh, The only study that I've seen is, it's a very small study, it's a couple patients and they looked at the virus, um, uh, the vi they recovered the viral isolate from people who had rebound and it looked the same. I mean, it was highly susceptible to Paxlovid in vitro. So, but that's just two patients. I don't know if uh, Peter or Mike, if you've seen anything else, but I don't have any indication. I've seen, seen no indication of resistance yet. No. The thing I'm wondering out loud about uh, is sort of two things. One is whether those people like a Tony Fauci or probably any of the people listening right now, we're conditioned. If we get symptoms, we're testing, testing. As soon as we test positive, boom, we're on Paxlovid within a day of onset of symptoms or less. And maybe starting that early, the studies were more like three to five days. So you start that early, you go for five days, maybe the duration just wasn't enough and the virus comes back because it wasn't, it didn't have time to get cleared by the immune system with the sort of air support from the infantry with the Paxlovid. So that's one of the things that I wonder about, but here's a question for you guys, because I'm getting it a lot and I'm holding to the party line, but it goes to that point about retesting, retesting. And I'm telling people not to bother, just don't do it, follow yeah, those simple rules. Yeah. And gosh, there's people testing like crazy and they go, I'm positive. I said, okay. And you're day 12 and you're asymptomatic. Forget about it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the epidemiologic data, even from early on before Omicron and Delta really demonstrate, I mean, for healthcare workers in particular, that's where we worried about it, right? You don't want to go back to work and infect your, you know, your cardiac patients, et cetera. But it just didn't happen. And we tried to get CDC to give us the data. And they did say that there were, that about 85% of people early on, um, were uh, were negative were were not infectious at all. So they said the majority. So it was eighty five percent was the number they gave, and fifteen percent were. But again, I, we don't know the conditions there. But in, at least in the healthcare setting, the people have the NRs. We have the option to come back with a neg without a test uh, after a certain amount of time. You know, after ten days with a mask, um, and and nobody's. We've not seen any. Um, uh, any hospital nosocomial transmission. So I, I think that's the better way for, unless people really, as you said, are geared up for those uh, uh, those rapid tests, and I would not worry about it. So I also don't worry about it. I tell people don't even bother to test after day 10, yeah. unless you're really worried and you live with immune compromised individuals or somebody you're really worried about. Um, but uh, so you know, who has so many tests anyway? And I agree with Bonnie and the studies in humans, um, no matter how many times you swab and you do a study showing that it's replication competent, I really don't know what that means. And I haven't seen a single study showing that that person after day 10 is still infecting another household member. Yeah. And these would be hard studies to do, obviously. Right. Well, so uh, let's let's stick with Paxlovid just for, for another uh, minute or so. A um, couple of questions. Um, does Paxlovid treatment reduce the risk of long-term COVID? Um, and what about the duration course? Mike, you talked about when to start it, but uh, one of the questions is, how do we decide on five days? And maybe maybe longer is better, maybe 10 days is better. Uh, is that being looked at now in, uh, in, in clinical trials? Yeah. All right, go ahead, Vaughn. Oh, yeah, so, so we understand, I mean, again, the data are, are not available for us. But the company, uh, you know, as you know, the, this was an old Merck, drug that was repurposed by Pfizer. So Paxlovid originally took the neurotelivir and they repurposed it. Um, and they just did a five-day trial. I don't know how they came up with that study, but they are looking at longer duration. I don't see why that would be a problem, but it's not available under EUA. So we can't really do it unless you have approval. And some some of us are trying to talk to um, the COVID-19 um, National Federal Task Force to see if we can do some longer, larger studies, because it would be great to be able to look there. Now, the other problem, of course, is it's not available if you're not high risk or uh, including age. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy this way. If you keep only testing in certain groups, you're not going to get it out any further. But the company showed very high top line data looking at what they thought was an, a non-effect, non-inferior, um, lack of non-inferiority, uh, lack of a response in people with standard risk that I guess that means no risk, but, or low risk, but there was an impact. It was small, 
there was an impact on duration of symptoms. And I do think that in the long run, this feels like oseltamivir. We get this all the time where people fight back and forth about, I don't want to, I don't want to give it to my patients. But at the same time, if, if it works, especially with a very transmissible agent where you're going to get millions of people, maybe, maybe it could have been moved forward, but the company chose not to. So I think we're kind of stuck. So any, any quick uh, response, uh, by the way, Susan Cohn, who's a great friend uh, again is uh, is on the call and is uh, was wondering Mike going back to your point about starting uh, Paxlovid right away or, or delaying a little bit I think we've 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 addressed that uh, but one of the other questions was Paxlovid in long-term COVID I'm assuming we don't have solid data yet yeah. does anyone want to go out on a limb and I mean there have been case reports of people with long COVID who took Paxlovid and they got better but they haven't been controlled studies and um I think it's kind of interesting. Either you get it, it's probably a host, whole host of diseases, anyway, what we call long COVID. And maybe one of them is you have a viral reservoir still. Uh, and the other are more hyper dysregulated immune system gone awry flavors. So it's hard to say, but at least, you know, in the, in the, the Division of Experimental Medicine at UCSF, they at least had an anecdote uh, published three uh, patients who responded. Uh, to Paxlovid. So uh, I think we made maybe not not a mistake, but I think last uh, the last dialogue we talked a lot about Paxlovid. We did we kind of gave monoclonals a, a quick pass, um, but there are other treatments and preventive uh, approaches. You want to talk about this, Mike? You were talking uh, in our in our prep about uh, the situation at UAB. Do you want to? Summarize that a little yeah, bit. So the the supply of I'm not going to pronounce it right, but bevlimivimab, uh, which is the Lilly remaining monoclonal antibody, is becoming in short supply regionally. Um, UAB is fortunate; we've got a good number of doses, but that's the only one that works against the advanced Omicron variants. Uh, I think BA two or higher. So BA four or five will not respond to the other Regeneron or the original Lilly. Um, or for that matter, the GSK um, monoclonals, the Evisheld, the preventative one still seems to have activity. So that's hopeful. So that the people that are on rituximab or other B cell uh, inhibitors, potent ones, that I think that's somebody who should be getting the Evisheld every six months. Um, they're not, their vaccine response is not going to be there. Uh, for the most part, at least for their antibodies. And so I think that really is helpful. And the the uh, the monoclonal that works still works. It's just, it's a pain. Uh, it's a lot easier to call in a prescription. And now pharmacists can initiate this, right. the prescription right. locally. So it takes the physician or, or PA provider out of the picture, which is probably in the long run a good thing. But um, I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, you know, I think that's correct. Talking about disparities, though, one of the things that we've heard from a lot of national societies is that we're not getting the word out to people who should be getting Evusheld. Um, I, I think there is, uh, there are people who probably could benefit from Evusheld who just aren't either aware or they haven't, their providers haven't given them the information. So it is important to get that out. And, and I know, Peter, you deal with a lot of uh, patients with severe immunodeficiency as a result of organ transplantation and other things in your practice. What, what, what's your uh, take on this? And are you, um, are you an advocate of this? Oh yeah, definitely. I think monoclonal antibodies long acting for as a vaccine alternative is really crucial for that early post-transplant period. If you didn't get the vaccines before, if you have multiple myeloma or something like that, where you, like Colin Powell did, uh, and people are just not getting enough, you know, we have a lot of Evusheld still. I think I agree with Mike though about the Beftelovimab, which is a Lilly product, which we don't have a lot of, uh, or it's dwindling. But part of it, I think is because the government is not, doesn't have enough money to buy stuff anymore. So I think the last time they bought 150,000 doses or something and they're running out of money because that $10 billion is still held up in Congress. So I'm wondering if it's the shortage of that we're going to see in drugs is just a harbinger for the future where they're shuttling money. They have limited dollars, this $10 billion held up. They're going to buy vaccines 
and probably minimize some of these other things. Maybe vaccines and Paxlovid might be the the emphasis in the in the feds until they can get the money. So that's actually happened. Now we were uh, a couple of my colleagues here. We were working to try to do a lar larger uh, cohort study of high risk individuals to try to get them access to Paxlovid and track them with EUA uh, with approval from the FDA, et cetera. And when we talked to the federal um, COVID experts, they said, you know, we they were hoping that we could get it done. And we're in the middle of trying to get this organized. But the reason it's important is they said we can't do it because we don't have money. We don't have any more money to really put out messaging or PSAs around any of these antivirals. They're really focusing, as you said, they're channeling all the money down to vaccines at this point. I mean, I guess it's the better way to go, but if but that's why they're looking to societies to really try to get word out about these things. And it is important to get Congress to move on these dollars because we're not, they're, they're literally at the bottom of the barrel in terms of yeah. cash for um, for implementation. So one of the things I'm seeing in the, in the Q&A is um, people really kind of um, taking us to task a little bit that we don't have a better definition of long COVID. That we, we, I don't think we need to go back to that today, but I, I do think that um, that that's an area where we're going to need to see some uh, some better consensus. So, so Paul, just to say, I mean, I think the others are involved as well, but there we have hundreds of millions of dollars invested in these long COVID networks. I bet you a lot of people out there are part of these, the recover networks. And um, I think we need to see some data. I mean, there we've already started recruiting, you know, a few thousand people, but, you know, it's it's we're two and a half years in the money just really was released um, at the end of 2020, 2021. But we really need to start seeing some data, pulling out case definitions. As we all remember, case definitions for HIV were critical, gotcha. critical for us to understand how to start treating people. And, and then to meet, you know, cancer, it's the only way you can really start uh, assessing epi, natural history, and, and therapeutics. Great. And so yeah, I'll, I'll take the heat. Go ahead, Mike. But, but to go back to my other point. We've only been at this two two years and four months. And if you look back to HIV, AIDS was first described more or less in June of 81. It wasn't until March of 83 that we even knew what caused it. And a test wasn't available till March of 85. So, I mean, we're, we're in the early in this and I, I appreciate the impatience, but I'd flip it around and say, it's pretty darn remarkable that we've learned as much as we have in a short period. We just got to keep pushing. Well, maybe, maybe, sorry, Paul. No, I, no, I, think, I think it's a good time to say, this is a learn, a teachable moment for our federal institutions to see how we can be a little more nimble and still have good regulatory oversight. So it is a way for our federal agencies to really, uh, I think, for example, the FDA has done a fabulous job. I see CDC did as pretty well. Um, I think NIH, still has struggled more with their contracting and you know grant mechanisms just because of the nature of the way we do peer review, et cetera. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I do think there may be some ways to fast track. It did take us a long time to figure out how to fast track HIV, but um, maybe we can learn from that for, the, for, this, for this pandemic and hopefully for the next pre-pandemic. Well, certainly a topic that I'm sure we're gonna come back to as, the, as these dialogues continue. Um, I want to, uh, Bonnie, um, we talked last time about pediatric vaccines, um, and it was kind of a mess at the time. There were still a lot of decisions. Is, is, are things any clearer now? And tell us a little bit about what you're speculating about the rollout of the infant vaccination and who's, who's getting it and who doesn't want it. Well, the good news is we have vaccines now for everybody six months and older, and that's what we recommend for everybody for flu, right? So everybody six months and older should get flu vaccines. Everyone six months and older should get COVID vaccines. We now have two vaccines. So Pfizer and Moderna both have vaccines for kids under six. Um, and there's also now two do two vaccines for uh, two choi a, a choice of vaccines for kids who are older kids. The problem is it is implementation right now is very messy and I don't wanna go into too much detail here, but um, the problem of course is, you know, it's new, as Mike said, we're just getting into it. Um, supply chain issues um, came up. So now Moderna is really trying to push out the drug, the vaccine vials that they have. 
Some of the vials are not labeled for children. They're the booster doses for adults. So because it's the same dose. So in a practice where you're seeing kid, a lot of kids, you know, you have to be really careful about looking at the labels because the labels are, there's, you know, different dosages for each, uh, for each of e for even for an individual product, you have three different doses, depending on how old the child is. And so at this point, everybody in the American Academy of Pediatrics world has little uh, laminated sheets so that you know what color cap you have and what color, and some of them have one color cap and a different color label. So it's messy. Now, the only other thing I want to say is here's the problem is that the doses that were shipped out, the 10 million doses that, or 5 million that we were going to get for June and July um, were already sent out um, before all of the labeling changed. So those are all out. And if people didn't order them before the approval came, then you're out of getting Moderna. A lot of people are right now then just using Pfizer. And then the other issue is that there aren't any billing codes even available yet for the Moderna product. So even if you want to use it, um, you're not going to be able to bill for it. So right now what I'm hearing from pediatricians, forget what the, what the public is saying, as we know, there's a lot there, but the pediatricians are just defaulting to Pfizer. Right, right. right. Yeah. Got it. So um, I mentioned as we, as we started this, that uh, another infection that's gotten a lot of uh, news lately is monkeypox. Um, uh, just for the audience, uh, the panelists have a have a call uh, before these uh, dialogues to kind of review where we think things are and to raise questions that we want to make sure we address. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we didn't spend kind of all the time talking about monkeypox as we probably could, uh, but but it has been a an, a an a big story and one that's clearly evolving uh, quickly. So I'd like to spend a few minutes. I hope we can still get back to some some COVID questions from the, from the audience, but uh, Peter has been kind of increasingly one of the national kind of spokespersons on, on monkeypox. You wanna tell us a little bit about your experience and uh, where we stand, both of the clinical condition, the transmission and the, and the treatment all in a few minutes? Yeah, so definitely scope of problem first, uh, more than 7,000 cases around the world. Uh, California, New York leading the country, 136 California, 131 New York. Um, doubling in the last week in the Bay Area, uh, as an example. Uh, so a lot of disease now, probably the tip of the iceberg, limited by not a kind of clunky diagnostic system in the beginning. Had to fill out lots of paperwork to get a PCR test, either from the state or the CDC. Now liberalized to commercial labs like LabCorp yesterday. So I think hopefully it'll be better. And the reason why that's important is because like with COVID, if you don't know you have it, then you, you can't take precautions and not transmit it to other people. So I think lots of people I'm seeing now have gotten it not from unknown contact. Um, there are some people certainly who have. Um, so that's diagnostics. In terms of vaccines, uh, not we have a, a decent vaccine, Janeos, um, but not enough of it. It's much better than the ACAM uh, live uh, replication competent vaccine. This one is uh, not replicant, replication competent, very safe, um, but released only in spurts. So uh, 56,000 first shipment from the government, from the feds, then 300,000 expected within the next few weeks. And then put in an order. There's only one company that makes it. It's in Denmark. They were like remodeling. So they're put on hold and hopefully some millions by the end of the year. So vaccines are great for monkeypox in general because unlike COVID, the incubation period is longer. So you can have an effect by, on, on disease outcomes by preventing the disease by actually vaccinating contacts. Um, so that has been the focus of much of public health is trying to get the contacts. But again, because of the diagnostic issues, uh, that's falling a little bit short. New York has started vaccinating everyone who wants it, but they've run out of, you, like it goes on, on um, Zoom, uh, on Google or whatever appointments and like they go out and it's harder to get an appointment than French laundry on the first of the month. Um, <laughs> it's really, really tough uh, in New York right now. And, and that's not a laundry service. I know people have refreshing, refreshing, refreshing <laughs> right, right. to get those appointments. Um, and then therapeutics is really interesting. We don't have a short supply of therapeutics. I was talking to 
the, the DPH in our local area yesterday and they were saying, uh, so far California says they have enough, we treat people who have severe disease. So kids under eight, um, people who have disease in their mouth or in their rectal area or um, who are immune compromised or pregnant persons and certainly people are hospitalized. It's called TPOX. It's kind of a cool name, uh, Teclovermat. It's an, uh, it stops the envelope being produced in the virus so it doesn't uh, infect other cells. And I've seen, I mean, in my small end, I've seen miracles. Uh, I started two patients on, on Monday, um, 4th of July, and they've been sending me pictures every day and they've been clearing off so, uh, so dramatically. So tell, tell us what, uh, those of us that haven't seen a case, uh, what, what does it look like? How do people come to your attention? Uh, uh, and how do you, what, what do you mean by responding? How do you know the response? Yeah, so uh, everybody gets a rash at some point. So in the studies, there was a nice study that Carlos had shared with us um, in the Lancet infectious diseases and, and uh, is posted. Um, everybody gets a rash, uh, but there's, not everybody gets a prodrome in this particular outbreak. So the prodrome is fevers, fatigue, um, uh, lymphadenopathy. Uh, that can happen in like 75% of people. That happens about anywhere from four, seven days to two weeks after the exposure. And this study was median of four days, which seemed really quick for monkeypox and textbooks. Uh, and then you get the hallmark rash. So in this particular outbreak, it's starting off in the genital area, which is very different from the textbooks. Again, uh, either in the penis, the anal area, people can't see it. Uh, they can be confluent. Uh, and they can have a lot of rectal bleeding, rectal pain, proctitis, super infections. Also, interestingly, 25% of people are presenting with another sexually transmitted infection. Right. So it's really important to screen people for everything, which I'm sure this audience is doing. In my own experience on, on Monday, one of the patients of the two I treated also had another SCI. Um, so in, in both the cases, of course they were serious, so we treated them. They both had rectal confluent lesions, had rectal bleeding, really, really painful. And then it spread from the general area to the face and trunk, arms, palms on either side and feet, soles of the feet. So when I say responding, uh, in the patients, they reported, um, you know, the rectal lesions shrinking a little bit. It's still there, still some discharge, maybe changing from bloody to one of them described it as mountain dew to me today. And then in the other, like really super dramatic case, the, the patient had a, a, a extensive lesions all over his body, including his face, very painful. And now his face is cleared up. And Bonnie had mentioned in our pre-call that it actually looks very much like hand, foot, and mouth disease. Um, so that when the dermatologist sees it, sometimes they think it's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, one of those uh, variants. Um, so they, they're well, very clearing a lot. So one thing I just wanted to mention about hand, foot, and mouth is it's, you know, there aren't very many rash illnesses, especially blister or, or raised lesions that present on the palms and soles. I was going to say Rocky, when I was in med school, syphilis yeah. was it, right? Syphilis, gonorrhea, a Rocky Mountain spotted fever, um, and, uh, and but, but the pox viruses can do that. And Hand, foot, and mouth can sometimes present that way. So, you know, it is summer. So you're going to see some enteroviruses circulating. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of it. But the other thing I wanted to mention, because of Peter talked about the textbook, is there is very good data now to show that these strains are, are quite distinct from the ancestral uh, monkeypox strain. So, it, you know, the, the monkey, the traditional monkeypox has them for case fatality rate about 6 to 10%. So we, we're not seeing that here. I think there's been one death reported. So right. I do think this strain is a very distinct strain. It's It really started in a particular social network super spreader event. So we think that th that will be the ancestral strain for this outbreak. Uh, so, um, and, and that's a comment uh, from one of our, uh, one of our participants, um, more infectious, um, but, but you're saying maybe less, uh, virulent and if virulence yep. is defined as, as causing clinical disease. So what, why would it, you know, why would a spreader event lead to a change in the virus? That has to do with the mode of transmission, probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're talking about high numbers of very close contacts in a very short period of time, 
and then people coming together in one location from many different places and then going back home. I think if you trace it back, that's probably the likely way that this disseminated so rapidly. And I think the long incubation period made a big difference too. I mean, relatively long. So, so I think that's the issue here. The other problem with, you know, normally, I mean, if all of you who remember, I mean, I, I still, I am old enough to have a smallpox scar on my hand. Yeah, that's, so that's one of the questions that I'm seeing in the Q and A. Yeah. What, what about There's, those that had smallpox? So there is evidence of, uh, of some immunity. So I don't know that we actually have data on people who were vaccinated. The last vaccines were given by the way, in 1977 fun, fun fact there. So if you're, you know, count backwards, if you're not, if you weren't born then, you you don't have immunity unless you were in the military. And I, think may I have saw done. my scar from. Yeah, so there is evidence of antibody neutralizing antibody. Um, so you might be protected. I would still be careful, obviously, but that's a very different demographic relative to the risk groups that we're seeing now. So, Mike, you uh, watch out for the uh, World Games there in Birmingham. Yeah. That's right. I think one other quick tidbit: um, the last outbreak, at least in the United States, seemed to be around 2003 from imported animals. The um, large African rats. Yeah, yeah, and and that was that was it, and that was a different strain. And I was going to make a bad joke and say, "Have we seen T-pox rebound yet?" But maybe it's too soon. <laughs> but but you know, but Mike, that's a great point because it shows you that I think with that outbreak in 2003, that was somebody brought in an exotic pet. It was a large African um, rat, and they infect it infected local prairie dogs, and then people had pet prairie dogs as well. And the reason that one was contained is again mode of transmission. People don't really have very, very close contact with their prairie dogs. And so they were able to get ring uh, ring around the prairie dogs. And that wound up with about 45 cases or so altogether. But that was, they went through the veterinary route. Here, um, the problem with these areas is trying to go to locations where people gather. If you have thousands of people gathering, you know, how do you ring vaccinate those groups? Yeah, so, so case contact finding uh, with these are probably impossible given, yeah. given the the nature of the of the transmission. Um, so a, a quick question, uh, monkeypox vaccine um, to people with HIV with low CD4 cells, uh, safe or not safe, live vaccine? I would not give ACAM, the old vaccine. So here's the other issue about supply chain. So ACAM was the traditional vaccine that we have for smallpox and it works against all the orthopox viruses. So this is monkeypox as well. We have a hundred million doses of that vaccine and it works very well. But if you're immunocompromised or you have eczema, uh, you have to be really careful. And there's a pretty decent risk of uh, myocarditis also, even if you're not immunocompromised. So it's not a great vaccine in terms of safety for a healthy, otherwise healthy person. But remember, smallpox was pretty devastating. So right. the new vaccine, the Genios vaccine, the total supply that the company has is somewhere on the order of 5 million doses. No, sorry, 7.8 million doses. That would and, be safe though for HIV. Oh it? yeah, uh, yeah, it's the safe. It's a non-replicating, um, it's a replication incompetent uh, virus, live virus. So it's very safe and effective. It was uh, it was approved by ACIP. When did we approve it? I think it was like two years ago. Nobody paid attention because it was a backup for smallpox, but now we have it, which is great. Um, but the uh, company won't, yeah, 8 million doses for the world. I'm not quite sure what so, that's going to do. So we just have a couple minutes left. Um, and one of the uh, participants says, uh, Peter, could you quickly go over the, the uh, testing procedure? What's the, what's the diagnosis for monkeypox? Uh, is it a swab culture? Yeah, it's a flex swab and it goes right now. They liberalize it to any universal viral transport media before it was kind of like a clunky you have to like find the right tube but just like tons of people have those universal viral uh containers in in multiple clinics and labs it's like uh, um uh, it's the most common one so you just send it and you can send it to lab core now i think the cdc would still like a backup sample for do confirmatory testing but the important thing for people to know is that uh, if somebody has severe presenting disease and you have a high likelihood suspicion for monkeypox that they could be eligible for treatment even before the, the confirmed diagnosis, which can take three or four days. So the, the DPH has allowed us to treat these people because they still wanna know if you're treating somebody 
um, even before the final diagnosis. And in, in the cases I've treated, the final diagnosis did come back as positive. And uh, how how well is the CEC tracking uh, monkeypox? Do we have is there a good reporting? Yeah, they're them? actually well, you know, again, it all depends on local reporting, but they're actually updating their case rates at the global level on a daily basis right now. So if you go to just Google CDC, well, you can go to CDC uh, the CDC website and and Google, and look under disease conditions under monkeypox, and they they are updated every single day in their in the uh, afternoon close of business on the East Coast, so you can get a real time count of what's going right. on in the in the country and the world actually. So um, uh, really, I want to uh, thank the panelists for participating in this again. Um, it's it's great having you, and I and I know that the that the audience really appreciates this. Um, there's still so much going on. I mean, just today, I think we've touched on a number of topics that uh, that are still very much in uh, in flux, both with COVID and with uh, and with monkeypox. I think uh, hopefully when we when we meet again, uh, we can get some more clarity on the vaccine. We can learn a little bit more about the Paxlovid uh, uh, rebound. Um, and for those people that are that are really kind of chomping at the bit. We will we'll work on getting a case definition of long COVID. Um, I, it is frustrating and, and we do need it. Uh, but, but thanks to everyone for participating. Thanks for the ISUSA for putting this together, Donna Jacobson. Uh, uh, and, and thanks to Paul. He's such a great yeah. the moderator. I, Thank I you love, for those I love managing you. this. So the, the person I keep forgetting to mention by name is Jose Francisco, who is a really great staff person with ISUSA. Um, and I wanna thank him as well. Um, so stay tuned and here on the slide now are uh, some other uh, ways to get information about what, uh, what the organization is, is doing. So thanks again for everyone, uh, talk to you soon.